0: Welcome to Merix Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Hello, my name is Grzegorz Stets and I'm an EU China analyst at Merix. In this episode of our EU-China podcast series, we take a look at China's information manipulation operations within the EU. In the process, we explore patterns in China's information operations, evaluate how effective are they and what has the EU been doing so far to address this challenge. Today I have a pleasure to talk to Ivana Karaskova, a European China policy fellow at Merrick's, who is also a founder and coordinator of China Observers in Central and Eastern Europe Network, as well as of Map Influence, a project that maps China's and Russia's influence in Central Europe. Ivana also works for Central European Media Observatory, where she focuses on disinformation propaganda and societal resilience. Ivana, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Greg, for the invitation. It's great to be here.
0: Let's start our conversation by taking a look at those different concepts that are involved in the discussion about disinformation. So there is a lot to unpack here. We have disinformation, misinformation, fake news, a number of concepts that are being thrown around, together with information operations, propaganda. So Ivana, could you help us to first make sense of the concepts that are important to understand when it comes to discussion on disinformation.
1: You're absolutely right. There has been a huge debate and it's not always clear how the authors are actually using those terms. And sometimes these concepts are even interchangeable. But just for the purpose of this discussion, let's consider misinformation to be an untrue or false information which is spread regardless of whether there is intent to mislead on the other hand, information are deliberately misleading or biased information. So there has to be some kind of intention to manipulate a narrative or facts to create a desired impact. And fake news is a completely different thing once again. It's a purposely crafted, sensational sometimes, emotionally loaded, misleading or totally fabricated information that sometimes tries to mimic a form of mainstream news. So there is definitely this intention to mislead, but disinformation is a broader category and fake news is just one of the techniques. And then when we bring up the propaganda, it's going to be even more complicated because the debate over what actually is propaganda is far from over. There is this conceptual haze with which public diplomacy and propaganda coexist besides each other and they are treated once again as interchangeable concepts. Well, I like the definition of Professor Zaharna, who distinguishes between public diplomacy and propaganda using the circumstances under which the former and the latter is applied by the governments. So, for her, public diplomacy um, is something which is used by the government in an open way in peacetime, while propaganda is used in covert uh, way and in wartime. So she defines propaganda as um, a tool which deliberately manipulates the communication through a variety of techniques so that some aspect is hidden from the audience and the audience feels compelled to accept this message. With coercion as the goal, information control and deception are key to effective propaganda. And to complicate it even more, if you allow me, Greg, there is the problem between the definition as we see it in the West and as China understands that. Unlike in the Western context where the word propaganda carries negative connotations, Chinese Communist Party sees propaganda as a proactive tool in educating and shaping opinions, thus contributing to harmonious society. So the Chinese authors and the Chinese governments are talking very openly about propaganda, which, um, of course, is not very well taken by the Western audience. So it is important to have all these um, changes and all these, let's say, aspects or facets of the debate in mind.
0: Thank you for taking us through this conceptual jungle. This is definitely one of the most challenging aspects of discussion on information operations of any kind, getting the conceptual framework sorted out. So for the purpose of this discussion, we'll focus on issues of propaganda and especially disinformation. And looking at China, China has not really been a big actor in the space of disinformation specifically until recently. Uh, According to Freedom House, however, the situation has been changing rapidly. So why has Beijing really turned to this disinformation kit? What is the core objective that Beijing is pursuing here?
1: What I see China Doing or applying in Europe has been mostly external propaganda, with just a couple of elements of disinformation. So, true, uh, the number of disinformation cases is rising, but still, if I would need to quantify it, and this is a very very rough estimate based on my research of uh, Chinese propaganda and disinformation in Central and Eastern European countries, I would still say that propaganda could be could constitute ninety percent, while disinformation is about ten percent, and. There, I do see three different stages in how China applied its propaganda and disinformation in Europe, one stage before 2019, then one or second stage in 2019, and a third stage after 2020. So the core objective also had a tendency to change within those three different stages. So the core objective before 2019 was to boost China's image in Europe to spread positive energy about China. And there were numerous ways of operation. So one of them was the investment into traditional media. So China tried to, uh, through the mergers and acquisitions, to invest into local media and through the local media spread this positive energy and, and uh, reframe the discourse on China. We have seen this in the Czech Republic, for example, already in 2016, 2017, when China invested into local media, and then the narratives which were coming out of those media changed quite significantly in terms that normally you would see the mixture of positive, neutral, negative comments on China, but since the day of the investment those media outlets were spreading just positive messages about China. So both the neutral and negative disappeared.
0: And what about the second wave? How did Beijing's tools and objectives change?
1: The second way of operation was using alternative, or if you wish, fringe media outlets. Usually these avenues are exactly the same avenues which other foreign influences are using. And here I'm thinking about Russia. Third way of what we have seen before 2019, how China operated in the media space, the third way was placing the ambassadors' opads into media outlets. And last but not least, China also invested into creation of social media accounts, be it social media accounts for China media, such as Xinhua or China Radio International, or be it social media accounts for different Chinese embassies. So that was before 2019. And since 2019, basically since the start of the protests in Hong Kong, China switched into another objective. And that time it was really rewriting the discourse of those media outlets, but more more and more also focusing on social media. So the ways of operation were a combination of all the avenues which were previously utilised but with more resources, with greater coordination, and also what we have seen was more offensive approach. I would like to give you one concrete example, so not to talk to in an abstract way. Um, through the Choice Project, we have seen in 2019 a coordinated effort by the Chinese embassies in Central and Eastern Europe, but also in Western Balkans, to rewrite the narrative about Hong Kong protests, and in- Interestingly, all those um, ambassadors, OPAds, and chargés d'affaires, OPAds, despite using different languages, they included identical sentences, which really suggests a coordinated effort. And those sentences in those articles were found in six different Central Eastern EU member states, and also in articles and in media outlets in North Macedonia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and Montenegro. So. By far, we can't really say that this just happened as an accident. There seems to be a coordinated effort to inject specific narratives into various media outlets in various languages in the same time. In one case, the publication of an article was also facilitated by hiring a PR company Uh, by the Chinese embassy in one of the countries in Central and Eastern Europe. So China started to effectively hide behind PR companies because it was aware of the fact that local mainstream media, traditional media, may not be willing to actually publish a piece of propaganda. Um, A third case, uh, which could be also observed uh, since 2019, was an increase in media cooperation through paid supplements. So one practical example to give here was the uh, article or a series of articles which were published in connection to the 70s anniversary of establishing bilateral diplomatic ties between China and the Czech Republic, where in one traditional media, um, there occurred an eight-page supplement which was distributed widely with a national circulation. And the supplement was obscurely labeled as a theme and a commercial supplement but the articles were exclusively positive on China and were signed by Daily's reporters, which misled the readers into believing that the supplement is some kind of a normal reporting, normal coverage, usual coverage by the media. And last but not least, what we have seen also is this um, appearance of the so-called wolf warriors, diplomats who started to be very um, assertive in social media. And creation and boost of social media accounts of Chinese embassies around Europe. But what is probably problematic here is not the fact that someone actually has a social media account that's quite fine, but the narratives which were spread by those social media accounts and also the ways how they spread. So through various uh, researches, we have found and the the other colleagues also found a number of cases of uh, those social media accounts which were established um, and promoted by the Chinese embassies that they were promoted through using of uh, bots, so using artificial entities who um, tricked the algorithms. so the the messages were much more visible both on Facebook and on Twitter. And last but not least, what we have observed since two thousand and nineteen is using and hiding behind proxies. I already mentioned the case of the PR agency, which was hired, but the other interesting cases were the cases of establishing, seemingly neutral think tanks, which later on turned out to be um, actually sponsored by Chinese entities or by business with close ties uh, to China. And one case, once again, here I'm thinking of one case in the Czech Republic, where a think tank was established, and later on, it was found that its um, main purpose was to, and I quote here, rationalized debate on China. So to spread positive messages, to spread positive energy, and also to engage in the discussions on behalf of China.
0: That gives us the idea of the second wave. But what about the third stage? How did the situation change? Is it even more challenging?
1: The third stage is even more difficult because all of these previously established avenues and techniques just got accelerated with the COVID-19 pandemics. And this led to utilization of all the previous um, untested tactics and previous avenues, plus new features. So the goal, once again, changed into China trying to shift the blame for the origin of the coronavirus being in Wuhan to other countries, to be it in Italy, to be it in Germany, to be it in the US, to uh, be it in NATO. And this is a tactic which we haven't seen before China using, but we are quite familiar with when it comes to Russia. So the tactic is to create, let's say, alternative versions of truth, to put there so many narratives that the usual response to being um, exposed to so many possibilities is that you can't reach any conclusion, that you would have a feeling that the truth is somewhere, somewhat hidden, it's inaccessible. So maybe it originated in Wuhan, maybe it was Italy, maybe it was NATO. And this is something which we have really observed with Russia doing to muddling, muddling the truth, creating alternative versions of truth.
0: Thank you, Ivana, for this great overview of those three stages, those three waves of Chinese um, information operations in Europe So you reference a number of Chinese actors here already. uh, Xinhua with media corporations, think tanks that are involved in spreading specific narratives, uh, Chinese diplomats that are taking to Twitter. And very often actually in the discussions on Chinese information operations, there is a focus on activity of representatives of Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And uh, Zhao Lijian, of course, comes to mind. But the landscape in China is, of course, much more complex than that, with many other institutions being involved in crafting and carrying out those information operations, including the People's Liberation Army. So could you give us an overview of who are the key actors on the Chinese side that are driving the campaigns that you just described?
1: It is a very elaborate system. So I would just tackle a few things here because China's propaganda machinery is part of a broader system of control administered by the Chinese Communist Party. It encompasses all facets of Chinese society from education, from military, oversight over press, news agencies, cultural activities, online media. So it is a very elaborate and very um, complex system which was created, first of all, in 1940s to really um manage the local debates, domestic consumption of news. But in the 1980s, the Chinese leadership started to distinguish between this domestic or internal propaganda and external propaganda, realizing a growing need to educate the outside world about China and to engage in positive international image building. So while the previous Cold War era Propaganda was mostly focused on ideology and promotion of China as revolutionary. Current propaganda is much more subtle and it uses a variety of tools. But yet still, China's external propaganda is heavily influenced by this mentality of the Cold War, where where China feels it's caught in perception of continuous struggle with enemies Thus, it attempts to establish some kind of international united front with a view of boosting the Chinese Communist Party's right of discourse in the international arena and weakening what China feels are anti-China forces in the West. And there are four critical missions of the Chinese external propaganda. First, to tell China's story to the world, to publicize Chinese government policies, achievements, perspective. Second, to counter what is perceived as hostile foreign propaganda, such as the so-called China threat theory, and in Chinese view, anything could be China threat theory, actually. Third, to counter Taiwan independence, proclivities, and promoting unification, and fourth, to propagate China's foreign policy goals, which could be basically anything from Belt and Road Initiative to 16 plus one, to China being the leader of the developing countries, and so on. With the hierarchy, it's more difficult to say because it all starts with the foreign propaganda leading small group on the top, about which not much is publicly known. And below lay the CCP Central Propaganda Department, which oversees the work of State Council Information Office, and that has the both oversight of domestic media and also is responsible for outreach to international media. So in their own words, they are helping foreign journalists to cover China. However, the external propaganda work is carried out not only by these structures, which I just described, but also through various other channels, depending on the issue and targeted audience. So a specific structure has been built for Ministry of Culture, Ministry of Education, Confucius Institutes play part in that as as well. So in some, both domestic and international image building processes are overseen by the propaganda machinery with very tight links to the party.
0: So, as you said, it's a very complex institutional machinery, uh, the tactics are constantly evolving and uh, the EU is definitely one of those on the receiving end of Chinese information operations. But uh, how effective are really Chinese disinformation and propaganda operations within the EU? Uh, how do you measure their efficiency
1: I would argue that Chinese propaganda and disinformation is still quite sloppy because it can be traced back to the origin of the source. Usually the hints are strange language. And because I focus on Central Eastern European countries, which are relatively small and the language may be difficult, especially for China as a newcomer to the region, The problem is quite visible, really, on the use of the language, the use of irony, which is very specific in CEE languages. But the problem occurs when the Chinese narratives are internalized, when they are localized, so when they are overtaken by the local uh, influencers, be it academics, be it uh, political elites, and so on. Because from that moment, it's very difficult to attribute um, where the narrative is coming from. We do assume that Chinese propaganda is not efficient yet, and we can corroborate these assumptions by a number of tools on a macro as well as a micro level. And the macro level, for example, could be the public opinion polls. During the second wave of coronavirus, a project called Sinophon run uh, a huge public opinion poll on China and found out that in the European Union, China uh, lost in appeal, lost um, lost its popularity. On the other hand, when we look at Western Balkans, for example, and do the same research, we will find diff- very different data. Chinese propaganda seems to be very effective during the same period of time. So the EU lost actually in its popularity while Chinese popularity rose. But... Um, I said that Chinese propaganda may not be efficient yet. And the yet factor is very important because what we have seen China doing since the beginning of the coronavirus epidemic was that it started to learn from Russia.
0: And if I can jump in here with a question exactly on this, how do the information manipulation operations of China and Russia compare to one another as of now?
1: One very important thing to Uh, dissect here is that China isn't Russia. Chinese goals are not the same goals as Russian goals, but they exist in parallel and sometimes they reinforce each other. So we can talk about Chinese confluence, Chinese and Russian propaganda, really running in parallels and sometimes even running in tandem as I said, China is on a steady learning curve from Russia, because Russia traditionally has been using the bottom-up approach. So first, it the local public, then the topic is picked up by local politicians, uh, far-right, far-left, you name it, and then it slowly makes it to the mainstream. Well, China worked vice versa. It worked from top to the bottom at the very beginning. So first influence the local elites, be it political elites, economic elites, and don't take care of much of the population. And this is similar to how the Chinese system works, how China is used to operate domestically. But what we have seen China doing recently with the coronavirus epidemic more and more is that China started to combine both uh, streams Of thinking on propaganda. So not only influencing the local elites, but reaching more and more through various tools, through alternative media, which are, for example, known to uh, propagate pro-Kremlin views, reaching also general population. So here I'm more skeptical of the future because China has a potential to be more problematic actor than Russia is, Because of the financial resources and because of the technological prowess using artificial intelligence to boost the images of China in social media.
0: With this overview, um, you also highlighted that Chinese efforts so far are are still sloppy, they're not efficient yet, but... There are some people that are skeptical about how much of a priority discussion about Chinese disinformation, about Chinese propaganda should be for the EU right now. So could you maybe recap for us, why should we really care about this topic and why is it an urgent one? What are the tangible risks that we run into here?
1: Well, we are facing a manipulation of information sphere and through it also the public perception and public opinion by a foreign power, which has a very different set of values. And these are in direct opposition to what the European civilization is based on, such as the respect for individual human rights, no capital punishment, rule of law, etc. Moreover, China has a very clear assumption that its set of values is superior and should shape the international norms and standards. So we are facing a foreign power which is Proud, Nothing is is wrong with that, but we are facing someone with a direct opposition of the values who in the same time believes that the European Union should actually run according to those uh, Chinese values. And second problem which I already mentioned is the confluence between Russia and China, which manifests in, for example, the anti-US and anti-NATO messaging. and the influencing of public opinion in this direction may lead towards dysfunctionality of key organisations such as the European Union, such as the NATO.
0: Let's move to the ease response to Chinese information manipulation operations. So, on the EU level, we have the European External Action Service and the uh, East Stratcom, which primarily works on Russia but also has China in some of its works. We have intensified discussions by the European Parliament, and there is also some cooperation on the topic that is being done with NATO structures. So, Ivana, what is the state of play when it comes to the EU's response to Chinese information manipulation operations?
1: I would probably argue that a coronavirus pandemic um, and the messaging which was linked to that uh, was some kind of a wake up call for the EU. And we are currently in the middle of a very small window of opportunity to make things right to catch up with what is actually happening on the ground. So I do see some positive effects um, and I'm quite happy with this uh, approach by the EU to finally realize that there is actually a problem uh, which should be somehow tackled. On the other hand, this window of opportunity, as I said, is small and may close very quickly with um, resolving or solving of the coronavirus pandemic. And we are still in the stage of raising awareness. There is a different set of priorities. Russia has been looming uh, over the course of priorities for a longer period of time. And last but not least, with China, most of the institutional players and national states are quite reluctant to acknowledge the real scope of the problem. You mentioned East Stratcom, um, but its capacities has been um, promoted, let's say, when it comes to China, but in the same time, it still struggles with a number of problems. The lack of mandate, the mandate is on Russia, not on China specifically. The lack of financial and personal capacities, if I'm not mistaken, there are two people uh, looking at China, maybe three currently, so definitely not um, matching the problem we are facing and the third problem is the frequent meddling into the reports of Stratcom by other institutional players.
0: You mentioned that there is also some reluctance on the side of the member states to, to look into this issue and really address it. But have we seen any member states that actually responded in a particularly constructive way to this topic, to this challenge?
1: Well, Nordic countries have traditional interesting approaches to counter information operations and strengthen societal resilience, so there may be some inspiration, but once again most of their activities has been directed to counter Russia, not specifically China. And the second problem which I see here is that most of the countries opt for actor agnostic approach. So um, avoiding the word China whatsoever, saying that any foreign power which may have manipulative um, intentions should be countered, which is absolutely fine. But on the other hand, when we are dealing with China, which is a very specific actor, we need to call spade the spade. Otherwise, all the measures would be very abstract and very uh, inefficient, in my view.
0: Referring to the window of opportunity that we have on this topic that you that you mentioned. It seems that in 2022, we might get some of the proposals on the issue on the table. We have some uh, discussions about the dedicated toolbox on foreign interference and information manipulation that was mentioned in the draft of the EU security and foreign policy documents strategic compass. We have the upcoming European security forum, but we also we'll see outcomes of the work of the European Parliament's special committee on foreign interference which also looks at disinformation and this committee also called INGE uh, Inge recently released a draft report on how can the EU tackle the issue of disinformation and China features there prominently so Ivana what's your take on this effort and on the recommendations that we have seen so far can you maybe recap this for us?
1: There is definite re- definitely more interest and as I said we are still in the process of raising awareness to the issue. So what the Inge Committee, um, the Committee on Foreign Interference and Manipulation, was looking at recently was various forms of manipulation and disinformations, propaganda and so on. It um, had a lot of meetings, uh, both public and also uh, quite closed-door events. So the report, which is stemming from all those meetings, so perhaps this explains why the Inge, the recent INGA report is so overwhelming looking at various issues because it summarises all those um, meetings and all those discussions the, the um, committee previously held. Well, I wouldn't like to start on a negative note, but uh, I have looked at the report and it seems to be a very broad report, more like a catalogue of problematic issues. What is also confusing is the level of attention which is given to various issues. So um, the the topics are mixing macro and uh, micro management. On some issues, the report talks very generally about, let's say, cybersecurity. On other issues, um, some uh, it is unimportantly specific, like mentioning Fudang University campus in Budapest. So it gives an impression that it the report wants to pinpoint on every single problem the EU has with both Russia and China and its influence, which on one hand is a positive way, of course, to raise awareness and shift attention also from Russia towards China. and But on the other hand, I'm a little bit sceptical on what kind of measures could be actually drafted based on the report, which is so overwhelmingly looking at different directions in the same time. But it's fair to say that the report is going on plenum on December this year. So maybe there may be ch- changes in the report in the end and the final version may look very differently than what I have seen.
0: Thank you. and. Can you maybe give us a broader overview of what can we expect from the European side uh, in 2022 when it comes to the topic of disinformation? It does seem that there will be some opportunities throughout the next year to take a look at more of those defensive measures when it comes to French presidency, strategic compass, the report that we just discussed. Does it seem like the EU is really going to move forward on the issue?
1: Well, it seems that uh, EU is moving towards um, calling spade the spade, calling the disinformation disinformation and also, um, let's say, cautiously also been pointing at various uh, perpetrators of those attacks, cyber attacks, and um, information manipulation efforts, but it's too soon to tell because most of those um, toolboxes has not been published yet. They have not been even debated with um, experts. Um, some kind of background checks were not done yet, so it's dif- difficult to say what there will be. What I do expect is that most likely the EU will not move too dramatically in this area of um, pinpointing directly at China. It is more comfortable with um, looking at Russia and calling Russian disinformation tactics what what they are, but it's less willing to do so when it comes to China.
0: And to slowly wrap up our discussion, I have a more fundamental question to you. So... Considering all that we have discussed so far, where do you think is the real fundamental problem, the the weakest link, if you will, of the EU regarding Chinese information operation? Uh, is it China's activity? Is it local actors, like European populists or specific think tanks or, or or politicians, some of the cases that you mentioned during our conversation? Or perhaps is it just insufficient general China literacy in European societies? What do you think is the core problem that we should start working on first?
1: So I think it's a combination of the problems. But probably if we have to start somewhere, I would start with increasing of the literacy of European societies. China has not figured very high on the debates for a very long period of time, while China definitely is going to stay here, it's going to affect international global order, it's going to affect European Union. So I do think that we have to start moving into this direction of increasing both the literacy of the European society when it comes to propaganda, fake news, um, manipulation of the narratives. So increasing the media literacy, increasing fact-checking efforts, focusing on youngest generation, but also func- focusing on pensioners, which are quite often spreading and repeating the narratives they read because they are lacking the media literacy competencies. And in the same time, we also need to increase China competencies among the EU countries. And this may start also from the very beginning level of the elementary schools towards universities and towards also political elites. So this could be something which could which could be done and which which reasonably should be done and should have been done many decades actually earlier than we started to do that. So in Central and Eastern Europe, there are projects which are looking specifically at Chinese manipulation in media, such as map influence, such as China observers in Central and Eastern Europe, but many others as well. And from that, we can move towards raising this awareness of the problem towards Uh, raising also the urgency of the problem uh, from bottom up.
0: And to really close up our conversation with a slightly provocative question, are you optimistic about the prospect of the EU addressing this challenge constructively?
1: I'm an eternal optimist, so I try to look at the bright side of the things, um, though there may not be so many. Um, So I would probably argue that There are already programs which are designed to tackle this very issue of foreign hostile influence, including propaganda and disinformation. Um, We may not be in a perfect stage yet. We are kind of muddling through, but it is already starting from some point. What we need to do is to simply allocate more resources in terms of political capital, in terms of human resources, financial resources to strengthen these efforts.
0: So it seems like a lot of work still remains ahead of us. Ivana, thank you very much for a great conversation and for sharing all your observations with us. It was a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Greg.
0: You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at MerrickSorg.